It's a joy this morning, uh, maybe more of a joy than any other I've had this semester, to introduce our chapel speaker today. William Wolfe graduated in 2010 with a BA in history from Covenant College. He's using that degree now as he researches and writes in the office of a US re representative in Washington, DC. But honestly, William might be the last person the class of 2010 and plenty of others on this campus would have expected to return to speak in chapel at Covenant College. But our God is a God of surprises and a God of incredible and gracious mercy. And I am excited for you to hear about God's amazing work as William comes to speak to you. Please join me in welcoming William Wolfe. pray real briefly. Father, thank you for bringing us all here today. I pray that you would give me wisdom and clarity, Lord, that your gospel would be clear and that we would all, Lord, revel in the sight of the grace that you have for sinners. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the simple fact that I'm standing before you today alive and well is only because of the matchless goodness and amazing grace of Jesus Christ who ransomed my life from the grave. And the fact that I'm standing here in chapel at Covenant College, that is a humbling testament to the sure sovereignty of a good God, his ability to radically redirect our lives and perhaps his sense of humor as well. It truly is an amazing blessing to be here. This is an honor to stand on the stage, to see many old friends and old faces, to walk around the beautiful campus. Covenant College will always hold a very dear spot in my heart, despite some of the turbulence of my time here. And for anyone out there who may be concerned that somehow I've been given a stage and a mic and 30 minutes, please know that I'm only here because of the grace of Christ in my life and my desire is to give God all the glory for that grace. But as I share my testimony, let me start at the beginning. I grew up, as I imagine many of you here did, raised by two loving Christian parents. Uh, we lived in Matthews, North Carolina. I was homeschooled through middle school and then went on to high school at a Christian high school, Metrolina Christian Academy. Um, <laughs> I, uh, we went to a local church, Christ Covenant, a PCA church, as I'm sure some of y'all have come from there as well. I was there almost every Sunday growing up. Um, my first conversion, what I now know was a false conversion, took place when I was about nine or ten years old. I was at a vacation Bible school for a week-long deal, and the pastor at the church gets up on the last day and explains to all the kids that the bad things that they have done in their life are sins, and if we sin, we are going to hell. Well, I didn't want to go to hell, and so with all the faith and fear a nine or ten-year-old can muster, 
I asked Jesus to come into my heart, which in retrospect is kind of a terrible thing to do because I didn't need Jesus to come live inside my dead heart. What I needed was an entirely new one. The prophet Ezekiel describes this in chapter 11, verse 19. It says, I will give them an undivided heart and a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A new heart was what I needed, but until December 2011, all I had was mental assent. I grew up ingrained in Christianity, and I never not believed what I heard, intellectually speaking at least. I memorized Bible verses. I would defend the validity of the faith with my words at least, and I tried to live a good life. In hindsight, I think part of it was simply convenience. It was quite convenient for me to be a Christian, which is ironic in some ways, because that is not the historical norm for Christians and Christianity. I already pushed the limits of the rules, got in enough trouble as it was, and so there's nothing to be gained by not being a Christian. But I never understood the gospel, which is the most important part of our faith. My viewing myself as a Christian, coupled with the next 11 years of youth group, church attendance, going to a Christian high school, then on to further studies at a Christian college here at Covenant, left little doubt in my mind that I was saved. Although the sin and rebellion of what was still my dead heart started becoming much more outwardly noticeable from about 18 years old and on, and even more indicting then the sin, perhaps, was my lack of guilt. A quick thought for those of you here who also grew up incubated in the faith. I pray that you would check your own hearts. Don't assume you are saved because your parents are. God judges no one on anything more or less than their own heart. Ezekiel 18 says, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. We are neither saved nor condemned by our parents. If you have been raised by Christian parents, praise the Lord. However, there will come a point in your life when all the scaffolding is torn down and the support is gone, and then you will see if the building will stand. If what you truly believe is built on Christ's sacrifice for your own soul before your creator, if Jesus is your Lord, or if your faith is just a flimsy facade of following a savior who is good for you on Sunday mornings because your parents take you to church, but that's just about it. I myself came to such a point at about the beginning of 2010, halfway through my senior year here. I had spent my freshman and sophomore years here at Covenant living on the ghetto, playing soccer, studying history, and focusing on myself. My church attendance was minimal. Christian disciplines were non-existent in my life. I had little to no accountability. And I walked around with my chest stuck out and a chip on my shoulder. I was ruled by my selfish and arrogant flesh. Towards the end of my sophomore year, things were not going well for me here at Covenant. I think I've been on probation every semester so far. Didn't seem to get along with anyone in authority on campus, and I wanted out 
and this is putting it mildly. The problem, of course, in my mind was everyone else, not me. I was a victim of my circumstances. In reality, I was a slave to my sin. Anyway, I left Covenant at the end of my sophomore year. I transferred to another school, Bellhaven. Part of it was me trying to leave here. Part of it was chasing a girl at the time. Part of it was me running for myself. The problem was, in Jackson, Mississippi, I was still there. And so after a year of causing similar problems, I ended up coming back to Covenant for my senior year. And my first semester, my senior year here, was really no different. Same me, same pride, same sin. And at the end of my first semester, I had been told that I was no longer welcome to live on the ghetto where I had been living. So, cue January 2010. I was 21 years old. I moved off campus and was living with two older guys who um, weren't living as Christians if they were. And all of a sudden, the props holding up my fake faith were gone. And the world was very appealing. I hadn't really partied much through college, and now before me, in my estimation at least, was the last few months to live what seemed to be the fun lifestyle I had been missing out on. I started drinking and partying, buying the culture's lies about what college life is supposed to look like. And honestly, at the start of it, I found that it was fun. I sinned because I wanted to sin. I was, as Paul puts in Romans, suppressing the truth with my wickedness. The next two years of my life were a series of steps, mostly small, so much bigger than others, down a path to destruction. My last semester here was roses in my mind. I partied, I drank, I smoked weed, I lived an immoral lifestyle. I was a liar, I deceived people, and I still managed to write my sip and walk and graduate with honors. I felt on top of the world, graduating. I wanted to move back here, get a job, and keep having fun. And this is when things started going south. That first summer out of school was fraught with hardship, heartache, and beginning of very real consequences for my foolish actions. Actions. I was in a serious car accident, driving drunk up Lookout Mountain without a seatbelt on, trying to come back here, one in which I walked away with nothing but stitches and enduring testimony to God's protective hand and grace despite my sin. After that, my sister Karen got pregnant, my grandfather died, my uncle began seriously suffering from a failed intestine transplant. All of a sudden around me I saw death, disease, and uncertainty plaguing myself and my family. And since I was not seeking the Lord at this time, I had nowhere to go, no hope but myself, or as I increasingly found, alcohol. I ended up coming back to Lookout Mountain finally at the end of August. I moved into a house near the college and started trying to survive life out of school. As I looked for work, I developed a drinking problem, choosing to job hunt till about 4 p.m. and then start drinking after that. My budding alcoholism, along with a very unhealthy relationship, compounded by my new feelings as a failure, as I lacked clear direction, coupled with other family problems, my whole sinful lifestyle eventually changed my demeanor. I continued to drink increasingly because I felt like I had to, not just that I wanted to, when I drank, now instead of having fun, I got angry, mean, and violent. I estranged my friends. I ruined relationships. In January of 2011, I got in another car accident. I was charged with a DUI and arrested right out in front of Krupski Loop. 
as I was sitting in jail in Trenton, Georgia, I can remember wondering to myself, how in the world did I end up here? I, it should have been a wake-up call, but it wasn't yet. February through May of 2011 was marred by angry, violent, drunken rages. Over the course of the months, as I subjected others to embarrassing and horrific displays of my wickedness, time after time, I just ended up feeling hardened. At this point, I really didn't know what to think of myself anymore, because even that false illusion of myself that I had painted in my mind was no longer sustainable as I looked at the reality of my life. I was ashamed of the man in the mirror and didn't know where that kid who had so much potential had gone. Even in all of this, there was some part of me that knew it was wrong, that something needed to change, but it all depended upon my own strength and what was somewhat of a last-ditch effort to escape the wreckage that last year of my life had been. I moved to New York at the beginning of the summer of 2011 to sort things out and try to start fresh. Then, after having been there for only three weeks, I received a phone call on the night of June 21st, 2011, from my father, telling me that my 50-year-old little brother Evan had died in a tragic accident. So immediately I flew home to North Carolina. We planned a funeral and buried my brother. Dealing with the grief from this heart-wrenching and staggering loss sent me right back down that dark road that I wanted to leave, yet this time even further, as I struggled to cope with this bitter and harsh reality that my family had been torn apart, my brother was dead and gone, as I tried to face down the darkness of death on my own strength, I failed. I began drinking more five nights a week if I had to, just to try to numb the pain, but it never did. It just made it worse. The loss of my brother, the continued heartache and strife of all my failing relationships, and my drinking soon led to serious depression, a deep sense of daily futility, and the beginning of suicidal thoughts. August, September, October were dark months for me with few moments of hope. After finally being convicted of my DUI and I'd still not found work in Charlotte, I just spent most of my nights sitting at my brother's grave. Eventually, towards the end of October, I moved up to the eastern shore of Maryland. My aunt had offered for me to come help manage some apartments. I had nothing else better to do, so I went. I was mentally, spiritually, and physically fatigued weary of holding together the shattered pieces of my life anymore, I felt stuck at the bottom of a dark well, and the small, dim circle of light that was the opening above grew further away each day in my mind and in my heart. Um, sorry, one second. In December 2011, I'd come into D.C. to visit my sister Danica for a weekend. And the last straw of something that I thought was good in my life, something I'd hoped for, finally snapped after an argument that I started, which I always did, signaled the end of this relationship that I was desperately trying to hold on to. And this started a three-day drinking binge for me that culminated with waking up on Sunday morning and drinking again before going to church. Then showing up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for the very first time very much drunk 
and very much done with life. I made it through the first three songs as I sat there and the hope of heaven had no meaning to me anymore. I thought to myself, forget this. I got up and I walked out. I left fully intending on finding a way to end my life because everything just seemed like this cruel joke that God was playing on us and I was done laughing with it. So I left the church. I wandered over near Union Station in D.C. I bought a pack of cigarettes and I went and sat down on a bench and thought to myself as I was watching the traffic pass in front of me that I'll smoke a few of these and then I'll walk out in front of a bus. I was in those moments wholly and completely at the end of myself. I sat there, I was crying to myself in a crazed sort of way with my head in my hands and all hope lost. And then my father called me and what was very providential timing, my earthly father's phone call was enough to convince me to continue this life. But with a bitter and hollowed heart, I told my dad that for his sake I would stay, stay to suffer through the rest of my ruined days on this planet. After Danica got out of service and didn't know where she was, she came to find me. She picked me up and brought me back to the parking lot at the church. Being the loving sister that she is, she asked me if she went and got the pastor, would I talk to him? I didn't really care at that point, so I said, sure, I'll talk to him. So my sister goes and gets Mark Dever, who's the pastor at Capitol Baptist Church, and he comes and he sits in the car with me. I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of him. To me, at that point in time, he's just some other Southern Baptist pastor, but in a suit in D.C., something I've learned to be far from the truth. We talked for a while, and he asked me questions about my life. I was, for a change, honest with him, and he very quickly got this view of the sin-laden despondency that had been my life for the past many years. He went to Galatians 5 and read verses 19 through 24. For the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature, its passions and desires. There it was in black and white words on a page. That first list was more or less a checklist of my life. And upon hearing the differences between the two types of lifestyles, by the sinful nature and by the spirit, as I was honest with myself, I knew that my life was not one that would be inheriting the kingdom of God. So Mark gives me this book, Am I Really a Christian, by Mike McKinley. Asked me if I would read it and come back that evening. I read most of it that day, and just holding that book in my hand and asking myself that honest question for the first time in my life, it was almost offensive to me because I just thought that I was. But after I came back to the service that night and sat through all of it, I spoke to Mark again, and I remember him saying, you know, William, there are a lot of good guys here at this church. I think it'd help you through this. I remember thinking to myself, whatever, (laughs) I'm not coming to D.C. Well, that shows how much I knew of what the Lord was working in my life at the time. I had to go back to Eastern Shore of Maryland that Monday night. Danica gave me a ride back out there. And I remember feeling so very lost. 
I wallowed in my misery for the next day, but towards the end of it, on that Tuesday, through some prompting, I decided the best recourse, the last recourse I had at this point, was to open my Bible. And so I did, and it opened to Isaiah 59, 1 through 3, and these verses will forever be etched in my memory now. For surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things." While there had certainly been times of crying out to the Lord during the past six months after losing Evan as I was crushed with my grief, I was at the same time hiding myself in my sin. My hands were stained with blood. My iniquities have set, had separated me from God. Because sin isn't just something that the Lord overlooks. It is a fence against his glory. And when you are buried under the weight of your sins before a holy God, the only prayer that he will hear is, Lord, save me. Since I had never read the book of Isaiah before, I decided right then and there I would. So I went back to chapter 1 and just started reading. And a true testimony to the Bible being the living and active word of God, I soon came across verse after verse that spoke to my heart and my soul, rebuking my pride and the lies I had been living in, driving me towards repentance, yet at the same time comforting me with the promise of deliverance. Isaiah 1, 5 to 6 why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. 5.11, woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late till they are inflamed with wine. 5.21-22, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. I couldn't believe the Bible had this to say. I mean, this is putting a finger on my life and condemning it. These verses in the first five chapters fell on my ears. As the prophecies continue, a picture of the Lord's hatred of pride is clearly painted. And not only that, but also God's sovereign and complete control over all the nations of all the earth. 25, 12 through 13, God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He'll bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. But at the end of chapter 30, there's a sweet hope. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait on him. I pause there for the night. There's this weird sense of calm that I had, not that I knew what I believed, but that perhaps there was hope, despite who I was, what I had done, the evil my hands had committed, the people I had hurt, the hurt I had suffered, despite Evan dying, the mess my family seemed to be in, the wreckage of my life. Maybe there was hope. I finished reading the rest of Isaiah the next day. As I finished the book, at the close of chapter 66, there's this vivid description of the end when all nations stream to the mountain of God and they go out to look on the bodies of those who have rebelled. I was terrified by the reality of the coming judgment. And 
right there was brought to my knees as a real fear of the Lord entered my heart for the first time. And I realized that the depths of my offense against the holy, pure, and righteous, and powerful God would rightly condemn me. And that without Christ, I would of my own stand completely and deservedly the recipient of this condemnation. Yet with Christ, with belief and true repentance, I can one day stand before the throne of God and be counted righteous. After this, I went back to email this pastor that I just met and let him know that I think I just truly repented for the first time. As I opened my email, I actually had a message from him saying, I'm praying for your reading of scripture today. So I emailed this pastor back and said, well, listen to what I just read. I just read Isaiah, and it moved me to repentance. And then he replies, well, guess what? I'm actually in the middle, at the end of a sermon series on Isaiah. You should come back to church next week. What began was a period of about two months of clearly providential circumstances in which the Lord led me to D.C. to go to Capitol Hill Baptist. Danka faithfully drove out to Eastern Shore to pick me up and bring me in to D.C. for church week after week. And I actually wanted to go to hear and learn more about how to live this new life that Christ had purchased for me with his atoning death. In less than three weeks from that first Sunday, once I thought it was all over, one of the guys at the church offered me a spot in his house in D.C., and eventually I decided it seemed for all I could tell the Lord was indeed bringing me to D.C. And so I moved, I joined the church, and I was baptized as a believer. Here I am today, having been a Christian for about 15 months now, so very grateful the Lord does not deal with us as we deserve. Now, instead of the former life I lived, I actually want to read the Bible. I want to pray and talk to my good God. I'm hungry to learn about the life that he has to offer in his scriptures. I try to die to my sin. I've been completely sober for over 14 months now. I seek to serve others, to love the Lord, and to follow him faithfully. The weight of life cannot be placed on ourselves. We are far too small to bear it. And I have found the one who can, or he found me, bear that burden. I need to conclude. I'm probably going over. First Timothy 1.15 says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, who I am the chief. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Friends, this is a short summary of all who have been saved in the eyes of our creator and our judge. We are all the chief of sinners. A dead heart is a dead heart. There is no mostly dead or somewhat alive, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God created everything. He created us. He created man and woman. He created us to live and to love and to serve him in perfect obedience. And instead, we have rebelled and sought to serve ourselves. We, the created beings, said to the eternal king, no, we know better. The lives we have lived like this, in this willful rebellion, gratifying the sinful nature, condemn us all equally. And we are all equally deserving of judgment and death. But Jesus Christ displays unlimited patience by coming and saving us, by living the life we could not live, a life free from sin in perfect obedience, dying the death we could not die, a death that satisfies the wrath of God, the wrath that was on us 
and that we would face if we die in our sin. Then, proving his power and his authority and his rule over all things, he rose from the grave on the third day, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, showing matchless mercy to each person who believes on him and giving the promise of eternal life to all who would repent of their former lives and turn from their sins, who stop mocking his cross, pick up their own, and follow him. As I've had the chance to share this testimony before, I've heard Christians, other Christians say they think they have a boring testimony. But in the light of the fact that it takes a miracle to make anyone a Christian, that's just not true. Perhaps in my case, the outward indicators of my hatred towards God was more evidently displayed. But this sin that hides in the hearts of those who perhaps on the surface appear more polished, but they have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, it's no less condemning. But if the Lord in his sovereignty over salvation worked the miracle of new life in your heart when you were 10, 11, 12, and you've been faithfully following him ever since, then praise the Lord for that testimony to his amazing grace as well. One of my favorite songs now is called All I Have is Christ. The first two stanzas say, I once was lost in darkest night, but thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. There I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Friends, Now all I know is grace, not for anything that I've done contrary, in fact, to everything I've done apart from Christ. Yet the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, and and he, in his kindness, saved me. You're dismissed. (laughs) The proceeding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu.